Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's February 5th, 1909. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. When Time Magazine put Leo Bakerland on their cover, he was so famous that they didn't need to explain to the public who he was. This despite him being a chemist, a celebrity chemist. <laughs> they didn't mention his name, just the words, it will not burn, it will not melt. What they were referring to, they knew their readers would instantly understand, was what he announced today in history in 1909. His invention of the first thermosetting resin, the plastic, known as Bakelite. And you can understand why he called it uh, Bakelite, considering its chemical name is polyoxybenzylmethylenglycolonhydride, which uh, <laughs> doesn't quite trip off the tongue in the same way that Bakelite does. You can't put that in front of jewellery. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> but it is interesting that he was experimenting without entirely knowing what his end point was. And he discovered this substance almost a little bit by accident. Yeah, Bakelin's original specialty was photographic technology. He was an associate professor of chemistry at the University of Ghent, which is where he was from. Um, and in 1889, he'd been offered basically a bursary to visit universities in the US. And he and his wife, Celine, decided to stay there. His um, wife, Celine, who, by the way, was the daughter of the professor at the university mm. he was teaching at. So I mean, yeah. it's a little cosy, isn't Whatever it? Whatever you got to um, do to get ahead. <laughs> uh, his specialty had been photography, and he'd already invented a new process for developing photographic plates in water. And then in 1893, he hit the big time. He invented an improved photographic paper that he called Velox, the first commercially successful paper for developing film. And that helped make photography an accessible mainstream hobby, not something that you had to be a really like techie weirdo to grasp. Mm. And in 1899, he and his partner sold their company, which they called Napera, to former retrospective subject George Eastman of the mm. Eastman Kodak Company. He got about $200,000 personally from that, which he used to buy a house in Yonkers, New York, where he set up his own top-of-the-range lab. The only downside, this is a bit like, you know, the thing about um, hell where you've got soup spoons that don't quite reach <laughs> your mouth. He was now financially comfortable and had plenty of time to do what he wanted. He was only 36, but the one thing that he couldn't work on was his passion. Part of the deal when he sold the company was that he wasn't allowed to do any professional work in the field of photographic technology for 20 years so he had to look for something new to get into so he Which decided is so weird isn't it why didn't Kodak just offer him a job yeah it seems so yeah, short-sighted I, 
I know the whole thing is very odd. I don't understand how this came about. But he decided to move into industrial chemicals. Obviously, you know, quite a related field. Specifically, the development of synthetic resins. And the thing that I found really interesting about this was the industrial chemical industry was basically all about cloth dye. Mm-hmm. It was different ways to develop dyes and how to, you know, there, there were no synthetic plastics on the market. So it was a relatively niche interest. You know, there was this understanding that a substance like what we now know as plastic would be incredibly useful. But because there weren't any, most of the industrial chemists were just coming up with new ways to, you know, make better cloth dyes. Mm. Well, the kind of early plastics that there were, or like predecessor plastics, if you like, were based on plants like cellulose. That was used in billiard balls when people realised it wasn't such a great idea. They were so dependent on ivory to play pool. Um, <laughs> but when they, when they started putting plant-like material into billiard balls, the problem was they explode when you hit them too hard. Let's go back to killing the elephants. <laughs> it adds a whole new dimension to the game, explosive billiards. <laughs> so, there were, so there were a lot of areas where, as you said, they sort of didn't know what the solution was they were looking for, as in literally the chemical solution. But they knew they needed an answer to the question how can we have something that's durable and moldable? Mm. And I said, what's really cool, as you were suggesting, Arian, about the way that uh, Bakeland went around innovating on this, was he, he had the money for his lab. He could just play. Mm. It was combining phenol with formaldehyde that yeah. gave him Bakelite, and it was just one of many experiments. Well, he's one of those characters who, from a young age, just had this idea that it would be cool to be an inventor slash entrepreneur, and he'd been fascinated as a kid by the popular accounts of the work of Thomas Edison and Alexander Bell, so much so that in 1933, in a diary entry, he recalled that the announcement of the transmission of speech by Bell's telephone had made this enormous impression on him, he said, and he went about trying to build his own telephone as soon as he'd heard about that. And it seems to be the kind of through line for him. You know, as you were saying, Rebecca, by the time he had got his money, he just wanted his own lab because even before he moved to the US, he was writing to his wife about being irritated by the fact that living in Ghent, he was surrounded by family who were constantly just interrupting him and stopping him from being able to work. I get the vibe that Bakeland was a bit of a tall poppy for Belgium. I think he <laughs> yeah. needed to move to the US. He was because he was asked later, you know, what was your, you know, what was your inspiration? How did you come about it? And he basically said, "I wanted to get rich. I wanted to find what's the next big thing that's going to make loads of money, and yeah. it's going to be these synthetic resins." So I just went and did that. You know, he made no secret of the fact that he wanted to be wealthy and successful, which he was. And he wasn't that bothered about dipping chips in ketchup rather than mayonnaise. He was prepared to make that sacrifice. <laughs> uh, Even though the Americans have it wrong. life move. <laughs> yeah. It turns out that yeah. he was. You know, the first thing that he produced was a synthetic shellac. Do you know the shellac is a natural substance? I did not know this. Mm. Actual shellac is a resin produced by lac beetles on trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the issue with stuff, stuff like that is that if it's going to expand, you're going to need a lot of people gathering a lot of resin from a lot of trees. So there's sort of an inbuilt limit on how natural resins could be used. And so... Bakeland made this synthetic shellac that he called Novalac using phenol, which is a compound derived from coal tar, and formaldehyde, which is derived from wood alcohol. These would be the ingredients that would go into Bakelite in the end. But although he was dissatisfied with the results, he was really intrigued by the potential. And he realized that if he just tinkered around with the formula, he could create exactly what was needed because lots of other people were experimenting with synthetic resins. But it was really, really hard to get the formula right. Most of the resins which had been produced so far were either gooey, sticky liquids or really brittle solids. 
Yeah, I think that's the thing, that the first substance that he struck on was going to be something that could be a replacement for shellac because it just didn't have the qualities that Bakelite ultimately had, which was that it was the first commercial plastic that was completely synthetic, hot moldable, and once cooled, produced a hard material that was resistant to heat, electricity, and solvents. Yeah, so it doesn't mold again. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the thing, isn't it? You want to make a toy that still looks like an action figure. It doesn't, like, disintegrate. Yes, yeah. (laughs) put it in the sun well and and the first thing that they had in mind for it was that you know it became immediately apparent that that it was going to be a good electrical insulator but then people were just like oh wait a second but we can use it for all sorts of things like as you say toys or umbrella handles or pipe stems or bits of automobiles or you know radios or just anything just suddenly you had this very very useful substance that could be applied multiply yeah it was the kind of 3d printing of its day wasn't it really people knew that there was potential but it needed lots of people to get involved to experiment with it to show them exactly what they could make out of it i mean if you look at bakelite's own publicity material for what they'd invented uh, i'm talking about bakelite as a company now um they had a slogan for example the material of a thousand uses which is actually (laughs) dramatically underselling what you could do with bakelite so at first they mostly sold blocks of solid resin which they marketed as artificial amber so manufacturers would buy this artificial amber and they'd turn it into jewelry or cigarette holders and actually that use would continue for a surprisingly long time coco chanel would design and sell bakelite jewelry oh i love a bit of bakelite jewelry it's 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 lovely, but it's a material of a thousand uses, not a material of one use. And this all changed <laughs> in the early 1920s when Bakelite hired Alan Brown. He marketed the product really aggressively as almost a magical material that could solve mm. everyone's problems. And economically hugely valuable to America as well, yeah. because it didn't rely on importing anything, you know, unlike something like rubber. You know, you, you didn't need to go anywhere around the world to have any components to make it. You could make it all by creating a chemical reaction within his factories in the US. And that's really important, again, to go back to the jewellery. Sorry, you heard my enthusiasm when you mentioned Bakelite (laughs) jewellery. I mean, I don't have any because it is, I think, quite feminine. But I really love the way that it looks because... It has that kind of caramelised sheen, like it would taste like a Werther's original. (laughs) And that was really quite revolutionary in the sense that it's very cheap to make compared to something like a diamond, where it's all about the cut and the carrot and whatever. This is something that an industrial factory can produce, but can be used as costume jewellery, where the value isn't that it comes from something that's been mined or there's no brand name to it. It's an industrial product, reshaped. Mm into something that fits on your wrist. But because it's eye-catching, it is inherently beautiful. And that paved the way for all kinds of artificial fibres in fashion, which we still use now, nylon, spandex, polyester, etc. And one of the lesser known of the thousand uses of Bakelite was that it actually solved an art mystery. This was um, the 1947 arrest of Han van Meergeren, who was a respected Dutch painter, but also secretly a very talented forger. He was finally exposed as a fraud after a Vermeer that he was walking around was found to contain Bakelite because Van Meegeren had painted it himself and he'd used Bakelite as a paint hardener. I I just think if you're that good, you just deserve all the money. If you've painted a painting that is as good as Vermeer, then you're allowed to get away with it. (laughs) The weird thing about Van Meegeren is he went on to be a national hero because it turned out afterwards that he had sold a fake portrait to Hermann Goering during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. What did he do with the real Vermeer? Maybe he made that into an ashtray and put the Bakelite in the painting. (laughs) Tomorrow. Olga was Nicholas's sister. She came and met her 
and she said, that's not her. <laughs> Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.